was a young girl who uh, found herself in a kind of precarious situation. She had come as a foreigner to a land and found herself suddenly in the court of a very powerful king. And as she worked in the court, as she developed in the court, she caught the king's attention. And he put her on the fast track to become his queen, or at least one of them. And as she worked through the process of that, as she went through the trials that came with that, it became obvious during her time that he didn't realize the God she followed. In fact, one of his top advisors recommended that anyone that worshipped the God she worshipped should be taken out, should be wiped out, should be killed. And she didn't know what to do. One of her family members came to her and said, it's your turn. It's your moment. And in Esther 4.14, Mordecai says, Who knows but that God has placed you here for such a time as this. You move forward a few hundred years later to the setting of a different empire, a different powerful man, you come to the place of Rome, where the Roman Empire had expanded and become the largest in history. And the first Caesar, the first Caesar of the Roman Empire was a guy named Caesar Augustus, who planned on his name becoming the most famous in history because of his accomplishments. And yet, during his reign, a child would be born in the backwoods of a small little place that was pretty insignificant to the Romans, who would eclipse the fame not only of Caesar Augustus, but of every Roman emperor that would come and every human being that has ever lived. He would grow up and teach and stand for love, stand for forgiveness, stand for justice, stand for the people understanding who God truly is. And because of his teachings and because of his life and because of his following, he was betrayed by a friend, condemned by the temple, crucified by the empire, and yet today is worshipped throughout the world. And then, following his resurrection, a group of Christians would gather on the first day of the week, on Sunday morning, early in the morning. They would come together, and they would sing hymns together, and they would pray together, and they would read the latest letter that might have come, or a piece of information they had from one of the apostles. They would recommit their lives. They would recommit themselves to following Jesus. And they would recommit themselves to each other. It was remarkable because within that group of people, it seemed like everyone from all over the place came. There were masters and slaves, men and women, farmers and merchants and soldiers, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and Romans. And they believed every person had value placed by God. 
They believed that the days of animal sacrifice were over, that Jesus had paid the price for all of us, and they believed most astoundingly that a man had actually raised from the dead. And for their beliefs and for the way they lived, they were betrayed by friends and condemned by the temple and persecuted by the empire. And yet their influence spread like an airborne disease. It's our turn. How will we handle our moment in history? Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we've talked about for the last three weeks, as you saw just in that video of recent news clips, that was not stuff we pulled from 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 10 years ago or four years ago. That's within the last year. I want to thank uh, Jeff Ball for putting that together for us, getting all those places. And then here's the honest truth. The first one he sent us, we told him, was a little too long. It wasn't hard to find information. They're friends of ours, brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we don't know their names, still being betrayed by friends, still being condemned by the religious authorities, still being persecuted by their government. And yet we see people in those areas coming to faith at a faster rate than just about anywhere else in the world. They are handling their such a time as this moment well. Will we? You see, of all the things that we talk about, of all the ways that we talk about what it means to be a church, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a fundamental element of what we are doing. And part of the fundamental element of what we are doing is that as the church, church is not a building, church is a group of people committed to Jesus Christ, what we are doing as a church is we are being stewards of the faith of Christianity for our generation. And it is our responsibility to pass the truths of Christianity from our generation to the next with the hope that the next will then pass it to the next. And I know sometimes some of you in this room think, why do we focus so much on the next generation? Because the time we don't focus on the next generation, there may not be a next generation. And it is our job to be stewards of the faith that we have been entrusted with. Over the last two weeks, we've talked about the fact that we need to have a faith that is worth dying for. That is worth the price that has been paid to deliver it unto us. We talked about to do that, we must fix our eyes on Jesus, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We must fix our eyes on Him. Today, I want us to look at one important element of what it's going to take to give us what we need, and then look at what we need in order to truly take our such a time as this and move forward. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4. And if you can't see it very well, I'll read it to you. Now this week, this is a side note, this isn't part of the sermon, but this week is Thanksgiving week. And can I tell you something? If you've got a Bible, or 8, or 20, it's probably not one of the things we think about right off the top of our bat, what are we thankful for, but... Possessing the Word of God in your personal possession that you can get to anytime you want to is something to be extremely grateful for. 
I mean, we, 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 we can put some candles on the stage and we can turn the lights out and we can unplug the instruments and try to recreate a little bit of the feel of what it might like, be like in a church that is a fear of persecution. But you know what they don't have in those churches is everybody turned into a Bible. Maybe there's one or they just got it in their head. Acts chapter 4 tells a story that I think is important for us to understand how to handle when our moment comes. You see, there is a version of Christianity, there always has been, that is awe-inspiring. And in Acts chapter 4, we see a group of the followers of Jesus. Just a couple of months after Jesus is crucified, sometimes we like to divide, well, the Gospels happen and then Acts, and we forget that you're within a couple of months of Jesus' crucifixion. It's as if Jesus was crucified in the middle of September, and now here we are. Now, I don't know about you, that doesn't seem like a long time ago. I mean, it seems just like yesterday when it was 80 degrees outside. Okay, it was the day before, but you get my point, right? Like, this is quick. This is right after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Luke, remember writing the book of Luke and the book of Acts, he's putting them together and he's telling that this is the continuation of what Jesus did through the Holy Spirit and the apostles as they fanned out into the world, as they described to the world what had happened in Jesus. And here's what happens at the beginning of chapter 4. At the beginning of chapter 4, Peter and John go to the temple to pray. Now this was, if you think about it, a very dangerous thing to do. Who were the people that were behind Jesus being crucified. The people of the temple. It's the same people there. There hasn't been a regime change in two months. And they go to the temple, and on their way to the temple, it's not a, you have to think, it was about a 34-acre area, and on the way up the steps, there's a man lame from birth. He's over 40 years old, and he asked them for money. This was a guy that we know from Scripture, the way they describe it, everybody would have kind of understood who he was, what he was about, where he had come from. They would have known that that's just what he does. And so they ask him for money, and one of the greatest lines in Scripture, they say to him, silver and gold we don't have, but we can heal you. And so they do. And this lame man starts to walk, and here's the thing. When everybody knows the guy that sits at the temple and begs for 40 years, when he starts to walk, people notice. And they start to talk to the authorities, and the authorities investigate. And you can imagine. Can you imagine the temple authorities when they hear that somebody's been healed in the name of Jesus? Like, I thought we got rid of that problem. Like, it keeps coming up. And so they investigate, and the Jesus people are back, and they arrest Peter and John. They, they, these are the same people that killed Jesus. They arrest Peter and John. They want Peter and John to be quiet. They say, just stop talking about him. Could, could you just stop? Do whatever you want to do. Could you just stop talking about him? Because here's the problem. They realize that they healed the man, and they can't deny it, and they don't know how to explain it. And so they're just like, if you just t- quit talking about him, it would really it'd be good. They threaten them. I love what happens. Peter hears them ask him to stop talking, and so he preaches. 
Now, again, we're two months away from Peter being the one that hid in the corner and denied knowing Christ because he was scared of what the authorities would do to him. And here he is in front of those same authorities and he preaches a message that is not in any way seeker-friendly. He looks at them and says, Oh, you mean to stop talking about Jesus? You mean the man you killed? Like you. Like the one you had killed. And you. You remember that. You remember what you did. And you. You want me to stop talking about the man you had killed? Because, see, you had him killed, but God raised him from the dead. And then in front of the same religious authorities that had... The same religious authorities that had killed and crucified their Savior, Jesus. Peter says, because here's what I want you to understand, authorities. Salvation... It's found in no one else. For there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved. Now, here's the deal. You've got to remember what Peter and John have been through. Their leader, their best friend, their confidant, the one that they had put all their hopes and dreams and trust in, the man that they had hoped would take them to the toppest realm of ruling over Israel, reclaiming Israel for God, was killed, crucified by these men. But then three days later, they saw him alive. And here's the thing. When you see someone come back to life, You have a hard time being quiet about it. And so in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, it says there is salvation in no one else. (laughs) He just said the stone rejected by you has become the cornerstone. There's name and no other name under heaven given to people by which men must be saved. Look at verse 13 if you've got it open. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that these were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. There is a version of Christianity that is awe-inspiring. They were amazed. These are the religious leaders, amazed. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What are we going to do with these guys? That's the Lyle paraphrase. What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them and we cannot deny it. Do you hear the craziness in their voice? They wish they could deny that this guy was healed. They can't deny it. However... So this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in his name. So they called them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to speak, to stop speaking about what we have heard and seen. Verse 21. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For the sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Now, you've got to understand this. Um, 
I know some of y'all look at that and say 40 years old, that's not very old. In their day and time, 40 years old was way over the hill. You were almost at the bottom of it. Average life expectancy was not much more than that. And what they're saying there is this guy lived his almost whole life like this and he is healed. So the authorities gather him in. They say, quit talking, quit speaking, quit, quit talking about Jesus. They threaten them within the inch of their life and then further. And then they release them. Where did they go? What did they do? They went back to their followers. The people that were followers of Jesus. And they prayed. Let me ask you a quick question, okay? You've just been threatened by the same men that killed Jesus. These are not guys that will not go through with their threats. You've been threatened that you're going to be killed if you continue to talk about Jesus. You've been warned that your people cannot be out in the streets telling everybody about Jesus. You go back to your followers. You're going to report to them what's happened, and then you're going to pray. In that moment, what would you pray? In that moment, what would be the words coming off of your lips? Look at verse 23. After they released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They come together and the first thing they do in the prayer, notice the bigness of this prayer. Notice the majesty of this prayer. They say to God, God, we've just been released. They've threatened us with an inch of our lives. They told us they're going to kill us if we talk anymore. Here's what we know. You are in charge. Even when it didn't look like it. None of this took you by surprise, God. None of this is something shocking to you. In fact, they say, we understand that even Jesus being killed was your predetermined plan and you just used these guys to do what you already wanted to do. They think they're doing their business. They're doing your business that you are guiding. You are in complete control here. Verse 29. And now, Lord. Here's where the request comes. They're following the pattern, adoration, giving praise and glory and honor to the Lord. And now, Lord, protect us, watch over and keep us, cause our portfolios to grow and our waistlines to shrink and our kids to get scholarships. Help me pass chemistry. Lord, I need a date. Could you take care of that hangnail that came up last night? Is that what they prayed? No. Can I tell you something this week studying this? When you see the prayers of the early church, you quickly realize how small ours are. And perhaps the reason so little happens is because we pray so little. And I don't mean so infrequently 
although that is an issue. I'm talking about we pray for little things. Look at verse 29. This is what they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Understand, they've threatened us, Lord, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Consider what they've told us and make us even more bold. Now, let me just be real honest with you, okay? It looks to me like they had the boldness thing down, right? Peter just stood in front of the men that killed Jesus and said, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead. I don't know what we're supposed to do according to you, but according to me, we're not going to back down because we're going to obey God rather than man. It appears to me Peter had the boldness thing down. Look at verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We want everybody in this place to know who Jesus is. We wanted to know that it comes from you. We wanted to know that it is you that has guided them. Let all who know Jesus is the one that's performing the miracles. So their request is simple. God, you know what they've said. Give us the boldness to speak. Accompany that with mighty works that cannot be explained by men so that they know it is your servant Jesus to it. Twofold. That's all they pray for. God, you're in control. We trust you're going to take care of this. We know that even if we get killed, it's your hand that's doing that. We're okay with that. We just ask for boldness and we ask for signs to show that you are God. We pray that people will see your power and people will hear your message from us. Listen, if you don't know how to start praying in your life... Here's the simple thing. You pray and give thanks to God for the greatness of who He is. And then you pray that God would show Himself to be mighty and that people would understand how big He is and pray that you would have the boldness to be the messenger to tell them the hope that comes from that. Look at verse 31. Immediate, immediate, immediate answer. When they had prayed, you see, here's the thing. When your will, when your boldness, when your desire aligns with the will and the desire and the boldness of God, God answers those prayers. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken. Sign, wonder, show off that God's power. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, that they were given an extra oomph that comes from the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak God's message with boldness, fearless proclamation. Now, just quickly, I want to tell us what boldness is and boldness is not. Boldness is not carrying a bunch of picket signs out in the front of places and telling everybody who God hates. It's not getting on Facebook and calling somebody that disagrees with you politically, spiritually, or some other way that they're the worst people on the face of the planet. That's not boldness. That's being mean. No first church ever asked to be mean. But some of us Christians got it down pretty good. Boldness is proclaiming the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that it brings. Again, boldness is proclaiming the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that it brings. Look at verse 33. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. Resurrection fueled the fearlessness that fueled their selflessness that fueled their proclamation. 
Do you want to know what it takes to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ? Is you have to come to a place where you no longer care what happens to you. You have to give up all safety and security from what can be a comfortable life. Because when you begin to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, the enemy and his foot soldiers will come after you. This passage addresses how we live fearlessly for the Lord. Not because our candidate got elected. Not because terrorism gets wiped out. Not because minimum wage gets increased or decreased. Not because our health care system is saved or not saved. We live fearlessly because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Our confidence is equal to God raised Jesus from the dead. It says here in the passage, they spoke boldly with confidence about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that it provided. It's like that good theologian Bill Gaither said. Because he lives, I can face... That is Gaither, isn't it? I can face... Y'all think I don't know my Gaither music. Because he lives... I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. I can face uncertain days because he lives. Listen, I don't know what the next 20 years, 10 years, 4 years, Four days. None of us know what it holds. Remember the first week we talked about uncertainty is unavoidable, but fear is optional. Fear isn't really optional if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because we know that in the end we have a Savior who raised from the dead and conquered the only enemy that remained. And because of that, we can place our hope and our trust in Him. Listen, I've enjoyed being a part of talking about this over the last three weeks. It's been good for me to be reminded again of brothers and sisters all over the world that are suffering for Christ. And I would urge you to continue to pray big prayers for them. Again, they never ask that you pray for the persecution to stop. Like I've seen all these places of persecuted people. They're not asking for you to pray the persecution to stop. They're asking you to pray that in the midst of the persecution, they will stand firm and be bold for Jesus. I'd encourage you. We gave you each week a handout about a place. Today's is North Korea, the worst, the worst government for Christians. I would ask you to take those and don't just say, well, I prayed my week, I'm done. Pray for those things. Just rotate them between Eritrea and North Korea. Can you just begin to rotate those prayers? This is something you'd like to pray more about. Go to Open Doors USA. Google it. Find it. Go to it. We put out on our map, and we'll leave it up for a few weeks, a map where the arrows are pointing specifically to those three places where we're praying for. So I'd ask you to continue to pray big, bold prayers for them. But I'd also ask you, That since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles us in anything that gets in our way. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not on our families, not on our careers, not on our stuff, 
not on our politics, not on anything can that distract us from our mission. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who started and the one who perfected our faith, who endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. You see, we can fix our eyes on him because he's already won the battle. Let us live boldly for the cause of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.